Occupy the Web, you've said this multiple times, and it's the reason I think that you wrote this book. Linux is one of those skills that you have to have, right? Yeah, Linux is one of those fundamental skills that every hacker has to have. I also open up the book with the the first line of the book is hacking is the most important skill set of the 21st century. Hacking is playing a key role in geopolitical events. It's playing roles in espionage. It's playing roles in criminal activity. All of these things are part of hacking. Now, this is the kind of stuff I love to see. I mean, what a beautiful view. But not only that, I love it when companies help people change their lives through free education and low-cost certification programs. And I really want to thank Juniper for doing this. They are providing a whole bunch of training for free. Security training, networking training, DevOps training. You can use my link below, juniper.net forward slash David Bomble. Sign up and get access to their training for free. But not only that, if you go through their assessments, you can get your exam for a discounted price. At the associate level, as an example, you can get an exam for $50. Big shout out to Juniper for supporting the community by providing free training and low cost certifications that help people change their lives. So go and sign up for their free training, get certified and change your life. Hey everyone, it's David Bumble back with Occupy the Web. Occupy the Web, welcome. Thanks, David. It's always an honor to be back on the best IT cybersecurity channel on YouTube. I appreciate it. And just for everyone who's watching, we've done a whole bunch of videos. We were just talking offline about the Mr. Robot series that Occupy the Web has done with me. Occupy the Web, that's one of your favorite series, right? Oh, it's definitely one of my favorite TV shows. And if you talk about Hollywood's depiction of hackers, it's probably the most accurate. Hollywood does not have a good record in terms of being able to, to depict hackers as they really are. And in that show, what most of us love about that show is that it's real hacking. It's you know, Mr. Robot, uh, Elliot in the show, you know, he's, he's a real hacker. He's doing real hacking with real tools from Cali and other places. So that's why we love it. So I've, I've linked that below for anyone who wants to watch those. But before we get started with today's video, I wanna mention your books once again, and I'm really excited about today's video because we're gonna be talking about Linux basics for hackers. Um, but Occupy the Web also has network basics for hackers as well as getting started, becoming a master hacker. And I always say this, and again, I'll, I'll mention it a million times. I really like the way that you write your books. You write it from a hacker's perspective with a hacker's mindset. And with my background in networking, it's really nice to see your take on networking. But Occupy the Web, you've said this multiple times, and it's the reason I think that you wrote this book. Linux is one of those skills that you have to have, right? Yeah, Linux is one of those fundamental skills that every hacker has to have. The book grew out of my experience of training hackers for the U.S. military and the intelligence community. And when I used to do that, and this is quite a few years now, it's at least 10 years ago now, I used to get a room full of very talented people who wanted to be trained in hacking. And a good number of them had never used Linux before. And so I couldn't really train them without taking some time to be able to train them on Linux first. And so I developed a little handbook for them, and we'd spend the first day or so going through 
Linux basics so that they could go on to the more advanced stuff. And then that grew into a book. And uh, when I when I first developed the handbook for the military, it was very small. And so one of our goals with Linux Basics for Hackers was to keep it small. You know, as a matter of fact, I told the publisher I wanted it to be less than 250 pages. And we did that. It's pretty small. It's it's succinct. It's concise. It covers the what you need to know to get started. You know, we don't put a lot of depth and a lot of detail because you know, there's a lot of books out there, you know, that are, are great books that cover Linux in great depth and detail, but nobody reads those books. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted a book that was accessible, that people would actually read from cover to cover, and that's what has happened. It's become the best-selling Linux book in the last five years, and so it continues to sell extraordinarily well five years later. And so that's why the book was written, was to get people started, to get them into Linux, because so often we'd be training people who had only spent their life in a, a Mac OS or a Windows environment and just weren't familiar with the command line in Linux. So this is what the book is designed for. Of course, I also open up the book with the the first line of the book is hacking is the most important skill set of the 21st century. And I will reemphasize that hacking is the most important skill set of the 21st century. If you look at you know what's going on in the world today it's once again played out that hacking is playing a key role in geopolitical events it's playing roles in espionage it's playing roles in criminal activity all of these things are part of hacking i'm not saying all of it's necessarily good what i'm saying is the most important skill set of the 21st century so if you want to play a role in the most important skill set you know this is the place to start is linux basics for hackers get your linux skills down first and then you can move on to the more interesting and more advanced material but you got to have those linux skills first I think yeah, I see it a lot, and you deal with a lot of beginners. I'm sh I'm assuming you see it all the time. They want to run before they can even crawl, right? Exactly. And once again, I've seen this for for many many years, and that's that was the whole purpose of the book is to get you to get you up and running so that you can go and do whatever you're going to do with hacking. But if you don't have the Linux skills, you really you, you know you're putting. You know, the old saying that the cart before the horse, you got to have the Linux skills, you got to have the networking skills. Those are the two fundamentals you have to have to be able to function in this world. Why why use Linux? Um, I mean, I mean, there's, there's, you've given us a good reason to write the book, but why why is Linux so important? Well, Linux is, is different than the other operating systems in that it's basically it's all open. It's open source. It's open. You can see all the source code. And that is why people have developed their tools for Linux. I mean, there are tools that are developed for Windows, and there's some for Mac, and there's some for Unix. But most, probably 90 to 95% of the hacking tools are developed for Linux. Why Linux? Because it's open source. The people who are developing the tools can see the source code and use it. Linux is open source, it's transparent, it allows you to have granular control over the system, 
things that you're not going to see in a Mac OS or a Windows system. And, and probably the best reason for a beginner outside of these kind of esoteric reasons is that most of the tools are written for Linux, right? I mean, they're, they're almost, almost all written for Linux, almost all. So if you don't know Linux, you're, you're going to miss out. You know, you're just simply not going to have the capability that you're going to you know, get here if you're trying to do it in a Windows environment. And one of my criticisms of, say, for instance, the Certified Ethical Hacker certification is that they don't emphasize Linux. They're, they're trying to teach hacking from a Windows perspective, and they don't require that you know Linux. And that is a disservice to anybody who's trying to achieve that certification. Because if you don't know Linux, you're not a hacker. <laughs> let's, let's be really clear, okay? If you, don't, if you don't know Linux, you're not a hacker. You might call yourself a hacker. You might call yourself a certified ethical hacker. You might call yourself anything, a pen tester. But if you don't know Linux, you're not really a hacker. I love that. I think you've just summarized it right there. The first, the introduction of Linux Basics for Hackers, we talk about how to go ahead and download and install Kali Linux. But David's done some great videos on how to do that. So we're not going to replicate that. And David, you can give them links to how to, yep. you know, to your videos. And you've got some great videos to do that. So we're not going to waste your time, folks, on doing that. You can go to David's excellent videos on how to go ahead and download and install it, either as a physical, on a physical machine or a virtual machine. I use virtual machines. Why do I use virtual machines? Well, there's... There's a lot of advantages of using virtual machines, but one of the things that those people who are in my classes know is that I use multiple virtual machines. So I, I'll have different virtual machines for different operating systems so I can switch between them. I can also use my virtual machines as target and attacker without having to go outside of my own system. So there's a lot of good reasons to use virtual machines. You can see the upper tab here. I've got Ubuntu over here. I've got a bunch of other systems on here. I got multiple versions of Kali because you know, there's some Kali, different versions of Kali do things better than others. So I'm running virtual machines all the time. There are some areas where virtual machines don't work as well as a physical machine. And one of those areas is radio hacking, you know, the SDR for hackers. There's there's really some difficulty with being able to maintain that SDR hardware to a virtual machine. It works, but not real well. And so there's one of the there's one of the drawbacks. Outside of that and a few other places, virtual machines are terrific for a learning environment and teaching environment. So Occupy the Web, two questions. Would you recommend for beginners start with virtual machines? And do I need to have the latest version of Kali Linux or is like an older version okay? Well, one, I recommend virtual machines. Virtual machines are, are great. So you need to have a little bit of knowledge of virtual machines to be able to function well. For As, as a, a beginner, a learner, you can maintain a closed environment where you're both the attacker and the target, and you don't have to worry about any legal issues of yeah. going out there and attacking targets that you, know, you shouldn't be on or are illegal for you to, to uh, target. Uh, so that's one of the reasons. 
systems. Two is I can maintain many operating systems on my single system. If you're going to maintain multiple operating systems, the more RAM that you have in your system, the better it's going to run for you. And then, you know, there's a lot of beginners who want to use the latest and greatest. And I just got done teaching a class. And one of the things that happened in this class last week is that I'm running a year old version of Kali. And the things that we were doing actually worked better in this older version than work in everybody in the class who had the newer version. So they had to actually downgrade their systems to be able to do what we were doing in class. So don't be fooled by, you know, the latest Kali or the latest, for that matter, Windows or what have you, is that sometimes the older things, if they work, there's no reason necessarily to upgrade them other than maybe for security purposes, right? But I, I maintain versions of Kali going all the way back to the backtrack days. So way back when, you, many viewers may not know this, but it used to be called backtrack. And so I've got versions of backtrack going back to backtrack one, and I've got backtrack two, back backtrack three, backtrack four. And then I think at backtrack four, it switched over to Kali. And that was somewhere around 2012, I think, or 2013, somewhere in that area. And so some of these older systems actually do what I want better than the newer systems do. So as a result, I have images of all of these old operating systems around. And sometimes I have to go back to them. But when I have a Kali that does what I want, why would I go and get the newest one? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> I, have to have a, I have to have a reason, not just because it's newer. I have to have a reason to go and, and go to the latest and greatest. So as you'll see in this particular video here, I'm using 2022.3. Why? Well, because it does what I want. And some of the changes that have taken place since then, I don't necessarily, aren't necessarily good for what I do. But from a Linux point of view, it doesn't matter, right? Because like the commands have been around forever. Yeah, the, the the core, the kernel of Linux has been around since, what, 1993, 92? It's when uh, Linus Torvalds first released it. And, and most of the commands are the same. And so the, the fundamentals of Linux, whether you're talking about Kali, Arch, Ubuntu, Parrot, Red Hat, you know, you go through all of the distributions. The primary commands are all going to be the same in all of these operating systems. So it doesn't really matter what version you're using. You could really do what you want to do in terms of hacking from an Ubuntu, okay, from Red Hat. These these are these are fine to use. The only real strength of Kali is that one, it's Debian. Okay. So and Debian handles many of the tools better. Debian is a distribution of Linux. So Kali is built on Debian. And so is Ubuntu, but they kind of, they fork from Debian in different, some different ways. But you could use Ubuntu, you could use Lubuntu, you could use Red Hat, you could use any of them. So when people often ask me, you know, which is the best Linux distribution? The answer is they're all good. And so the strength of Kali is that it's built on Debian, which works oftentimes a little bit better on some of the tools. 
and it has all the tools built into it. And Parrot, Parrot has the tools built into it as well. Black Arch has the tools. In general, you can move the tools from any of the Linux distributions. You can run them on basically any of the Linux distributions. So that's not really that big of an issue. It's more of a convenience issue rather than a functionality. Right. So one of the things that people who aren't from the Linux environment or Unix environment, there's a few terms and few ideas that are kind of important to introduce here. One is the term that people in Linux always talk about binaries, right? These are basically what people in other environments like Windows would call an executable. These are files that can be run. And these include simple things like, you know, the PS command, the cat command, the LS command, the CD command. Those are all binaries, as well as some of the tools that we use for hacking. Those are binaries. So when you hear that term, don't don't get upset. You know, that's it just means that it's like an executable. It's a file that can be run. The second concept that's really important in getting accustomed to Linux is that Linux is case sensitive. That means that a uppercase C and a lowercase C are two different things, right? So that if, for instance, there's, if you type desktop with lowercase letters, that's different than uppercase letters. So for instance, let's just take a look at our, our Kali here. We can go to, there is a directory called desktop. And if I go ahead and go CD desktop, right, like this, it's going to come back and say, there's no such directory, file or directory. Why? Because I didn't start it with an uppercase T. So if I go and do it like this, all right, which is the way it's actually supposed to be, you can see it goes to desktop. So if you get this message right here, no such file or directory, one of the first things that you want to do is check to make sure that your case is correct. In this case, I would, you know, if I was a beginner, I might look at that and go, my God, I know that there's a desktop, right? There's got to be a desktop on this system. What's wrong with my Linux? <laughs> and and really all it was is that you didn't start it with a didn't start it with an uppercase D. So that applies to almost everything in Linux, that it's case sensitive. Windows is not case sensitive, so this is going to take a little bit of getting accustomed to. A directory is the same thing as what some other operating systems might call a folder. So it's a directory. It means this is where I'm storing all of my files at, right? You know, one of the things that's also kind of important, okay, to think about in Linux is that it has a, a file system that's a little different. Let's take a look at that. I'm going to put up a diagram here of, uh, of the uh, Linux file system. And for those people who uh, are coming from a Windows environment or others, this might be new information. So in a Windows environment, at the very top, you might have a C or a D or an E or an F. There might be, these are physical drives. Linux works on a logical file system. And at the very top, there's a slash. And that slash is often referred to as the root file system. That's the top of the file system. Underneath the root, you have a number of subdirectories. And probably the most important ones is there's one here called root, and that's the root users. Okay, root user is like the system admin in Linux. We have the boot, the 
Etsy. Etsy is generally where your configuration files are stored. Now, we say configuration files, those people are coming from a Windows environment. When you configure an application, you usually have to go through a series of clicks and click, 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 click to configure it. In Linux, configuration is all done through text files. So there's a text file. You go in, you open up the text file, you make the changes, you save it, and then you restart the service, and then you've reconfigured it. Those files are generally in the Etsy directory, generally. There's a home, and that's where you, as a user, are at, right? So, for instance, I go back here. To go back a level in Linux, I go cd dot dot. That takes me back one level. I can go pwd, present working directory. This tells me where I am in the file system. This is a really useful command. So if you're not used to using the file system, the, the command line in the Linux file system, you can always just enter pwd and it'll tell you where you are and so you can see where i am i'm under home and then my username and my username here happens to be cali it could be other things but that's where all of my stuff is stored <laughs> is in my home directory let's go back to our our diagram again then you see there's the mount directory okay this is where you're outside so for instance if you're putting a physical drive on your system, so a new hard drive, new SSD, it's going to be mounted at this directory. That's where it's going to be attached to the file system. And this actually is kind of a, a term that has a, it's a throwback to like the 70s and 80s when people used to physically mount. They would take a tape. You know, back then, data was stored on tape, and they would physically take a tape and they would mount it onto a, a computer, big, a big tape. And so that's where this term comes from. Because remember that Linux is basically a clone of Unix. Okay, Unix dates back to the 70s. And so some of the terminology comes back from comes through that era. Process is proc is where we have a lot of uh, our processes. We have files there that manage those. I'm going to skip this one. We'll talk about dev. This is devices. This means like things like keyboards and mice and all of the devices on your system are maintained in a file here. And then we have bin and sbin. These are binaries. That's what the term I was just talking about is binaries. This is where you'll see stored the files that are executable. And sbin is system file, system binaries. And then you'll see here lib, which is libraries. These are the what in the Windows world is often referred to as a, a DLL, a dynamic link library. This is just basically code that can be reused. So if I'm writing a tool, writing an application, I can go in there and pull and use call a piece of code from the libraries that I need to make my application work. So it's rather than everybody rewriting the same code over and over again, like how do I how do I make a window, right? You know, in my application, I can just call the code. And this plays a big role in hacking because you oftentimes need to have the proper 
libraries to actually use the tool. And so one of the things that you'll see as you develop as a hacker is that certain tools you need to download specific library files that the application is dependent on. And then finally, we have user. And this is where we're going to see other users on the system are going to be underneath this directory here. We can see these directories if we go back to go CD and then go right to the very top of the file system, right? CD slash. That takes us, you can see here, it shows me a slash. That means that I'm at the very top of the file system. Now, I can view what's in there by simply using the ls, which is short for list. Right? List. And I can just go list, and it'll show me those are all of those directories and a few others that we didn't have on our diagram. And one of them that's important here is media. So in that diagram, I talked about mounting a hard drive to the system. But in modern Linux systems, we now have what's called media, where your flash drive and other devices will attach or amount to the file system. And we'll talk more about that in future videos, but they now get mounted at media and not at mount. And you see a few other things that are there as well. So this is one of the key commands is ls. I like to use ls-l. Let's go and do ls-l, and it gives me a little different view of the same information. So what it does now is it gives me some information on the permissions. Right? These are the permissions. We'll talk more about permissions in a future video. And then it tells me how many links it has. That's what this is, is links. And we'll talk more about links in the future. One of the things that I didn't put in the uh, my Linux Basics for Hackers is much of a discussion of links. And so that's probably something we'll, we'll talk about in a later class. This is the owner of the file or directory. Notice here this. Let's, uh, let's talk about this very first letter here. That tells us it's a link. So this means that it's a file that's linked to another file. It's connected so that when I use, when I click on or use that particular command, it takes me to another command. That's what a link is. It shows me right here that the binary is also linked to user binary. So when I use the binary file or directory, it's going to take me to the user binary. Binaries, as I said, are simply executable files. This first letter here, the D, says that this is a directory. When it starts with a dash like this one here, that means it's simply a file. Right, so you see, oh, most of these here are are all directories. We might we probably see some, yeah, right here. We've got a file, a swap file, right there. If it starts with a D, it's a directory. If it starts with a dash, it's a file. If it starts with an L, it's a link. And I'm going to leave this right here, which looks like <laughs> gobbledygook, looks like gobbledygook to most people who are new to Linux. But basically, what this is is it defines who has permission to read write and execute the directory or the file, right? And this is important in Linux security. So this is what our top of our file system looks like, right? We've introduced a few commands there. A couple other terms that I want to introduce here is the idea of a script. And people, you know, hackers are always talking about scripts, yeah, right? Yeah. And usually, usually hackers are using 
Python scripts. Right? Python is kind of the language of hacking tools. Now, that doesn't mean that all hacking tools are written in Python. Right? It means that a good number of them are. And Python is native. It's installed already on your Linux. Right? So you don't have to install any interpreter for it. But there's a lot of other languages that are out there that are used for scripting. Of course, there is what is referred to as bash scripting, which is scripting within this shell environment we have. This is this is actually a shell or a terminal. Right? That's what this is referring to here. Sometimes referred to as a terminal emulator because back in the old days Linux was in Unix was run from a terminal where all you you didn't actually have a computer all you had was a, a terminal that gave you access to the computer so this is all, sometimes referred to as a terminal emulator or a shell and most of the Linuxes for that matter use a born again shell or bash shell the newer Linuxes the newer Kali's have switched over to a different shell called Z-Shell, and we can talk about that in a future video when we start talking about bash scripting. But there's other shells, which is basically this environment that we're working in here. Those are kind of some new, maybe some new terms, especially if you've never worked from a command line. Obviously, this is very similar to, say, a command shell or a, uh, a PowerShell in Windows, although I would say that it's superior <laughs> to both. <laughs> it's, it's superior to both of those, right? I mean, PowerShell is Windows' uh, attempt, Microsoft's attempt to give the functionality of Linux into Windows. That's the way I see it. They brought in the PowerShell in recent years because people were unhappy with the shell capabilities of Windows. So, so give them some credit, but it's not as elegant. I think it's actually kind of clunky relative to the, the elegant shell within the Linux environment. But, you know, I'm, I'm obviously have some bias here. Right? I was talking to uh, someone who's got many, many years of experience in the cybersecurity industry. He works for Cisco now. He's like a big shot at Cisco. And he said, uh, PowerShell is the root of all evil because that's how most attacks, are, <laughs> that's a, how a lot of attacks are made. Or I shouldn't say all attacks, but a lot of attacks are done that way. So, you know, just uh, to, to hate on PowerShell even more. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean that's 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 very true. A lot of attacks use PowerShell, especially post exploitation or in uh, once somebody's gotten inside the system, they can use PowerShell to maintain and do all kinds of nefarious things on the system through PowerShell. But and also, it should point out that a lot of the commands that we we use in Linux have been aliased into PowerShell. So if you're trying to use some of these commands that we're talking about here, you can use them in PowerShell. Right? They're not native in PowerShell, but they're aliased, which means that they're linked into uh, PowerShell. So you can use your Linux commands within PowerShell. That's a, that's, here's a command that's kind of important, and that's called clear. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I would say, yeah. so, so, so what we're going to do is we're going to clear our screen. It gives me a, and I'm still, notice I'm still at my root directory. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and navigate Okay, CD is change directory to starting at the top root, then going to home, then going to my user, which is Kali. Okay, so that's so now that I'm there, 
Of course, I can. I showed you that we can use the PWD to always know where I am. Right? This tells me. This tells me where I am. I'm at home, Cali. Another really useful and simple command that's always important to know is who am I? <laughs> now, this isn't going to give you. It's not going to reveal your identity. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we want to know. We want you to run that command. <laughs> <laughs> what this is is it's going to tell you who are you logged in as. Why is this important? Well, because in Linux, especially when you're talking about using Linux as a hacker, there are certain things that can only be done when you are root, or root is the same as system admin. It's the all-powerful user. Now, people often will tell you that you probably don't want to run your system as root all the time. Why? Because if you get hacked, then the user, the person who hacks you, is going to have all the privileges of root, which means they have all the privileges. They can do anything they want, just like the root can. So Kali has taken that under advisement, okay, the people in offensive security, and primarily you're working as a regular user with limited privileges when you're in Kali today. That wasn't the case in the past. And so for people like me, it's taken me a little bit to get used to this. But in any case, so I hit who am I? You can see that I am Kali. That is my regular user who doesn't have all the privileges. If I want to run many tools, okay, within Kali, I often have to precede that command with sudo. Sudo is, and this is something that's not in Linux basics for hackers because back then it wasn't required. So this is something that's come about since the book has been written. I wrote the book in 2017. It got published in 2018. So right around soon after that, uh, the new Kali started to require that you had to actually use sudo. And sudo allows you to move into the root user for a single command, right? For a single command, if your user has those permissions, and we'll get into that in a later video, but there's a group of users who are on the sudoers list. And if you're on that list, you can use sudo. The way that Kali is set up, if you come in as, once you, if you create a user when you install it, you're on that list. So you can use sudo to switch to the root user and run that. And that will give you all the power of the operating system. You, you're not going to be limited to anything at all. That's a command that's really important in the newer versions of Kali. I showed you cd, that's change directory. Right? So that's an important one. So if I wanted to change a directory, say to the Etsy directory. Remember, this is where all of the configuration files are at. All right, now I'm at Etsy. And then I can go ls-l, and I'll see all of the various directories. Here's that sudoers that I was talking about. Okay, the sudo config and sudoers. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. It's kind of more advanced stuff. You can see also here's snort. Some of the people who've read my book, I, I think it's in chapter two or three, we, uh, I use Snort as an example of a application that we can, we can use. I'm showing you how to use it to using Linux. In it. And it doesn't come anymore with Kali. So in a later video, I'll show you how to install it in Kali. It's not that hard to do, but I get a lot of questions about that because it's no longer, it's not installed by default and it's not in the 
repository anymore. But as I'll show you in a later class, is that you can actually pull applications, binaries, from any repos any Linux repository. So you don't you're not limited to the Kali repository if you know how to do that. And I'll show you how to do that. You can see I have it installed on my system. If you don't know Snort, Snort is a IDS, an intrusion detection system. It allows you to be able to detect malicious attacks to your system. You know, it's one of those things that you know, if you want to protect your network and protect your system, Snort is designed to do that. It's now owned by Cisco as of 2014, so it's almost 10 years now. It started off as a small open source project some 20-some years ago. It got purchased by a company called Sourcefire, and then Sourcefire got purchased by Cisco. So it's part of Cisco's product line. Because it started as an open source project, it's still an open source project, but they do have a version, a commercial version as well. You'll see this in a lot of open source projects that get purchased by commercial companies. They still have an open source community version, and then they have a, a commercial version. Snort is one of those good examples of that. The open source version still works great. You know, we can, maybe that's something we'll do in a, a future video as well, but at least I'll I'll show you how to install it on your system in a future video when we start talking about how to install new software into Linux. And of course, that's a real key kind of, of skill set in Linux. Is, you know, you, you've got all these tools already built into Kali, but you're invariably going to run into a situation where you need to install new tools. And I'll show you how to do that. And I think it's adding new software, chapter four. So we'll do that on chapter four, how to add new software. So just, just, just I'll, I'm going to try and ask the, the beginner questions. So why did you use forward slash? Why not just CD Etsy? Okay, so that's an important question. Um, so what happens is that when I, when I change directories, okay, there's this concept of absolute path and relative path within, well, for that matter, in any operating system. It's not just in, in Linux. It applies to Windows, it applies to Mac, it applies to Unix. So what I'm telling the system here is I'm coming in with an absolute path. I'm saying change directories starting at the top of the file system, the slash, that's the root, and then move from there into Etsy. So it's, let's go back to our diagram. All right, let's go. This is our, what I'm doing here is I'm saying, get right, go right here, slash, and slash is the top of the file system. Okay, it actually is, it, it denotes the top of the file system. And then go to Etsy. Okay, so if I were to have, let's go back, let's go back one level. It goes back to PWD. Let's do that. This is a real important concept. And let's go say CD to my home directory, which is Kali. Okay. Like that. Notice that I typed it out with an absolute path, starting with the slash and then home and then Kali. Now, if I said CD Etsy, this is what's called a relative path. All right. This is change directory to Etsy. This says, go ahead and look for the Etsy directory after the root, the home, the Kali. So what we're looking for essentially is root, home, Kali, Etsy. And when I do that, 
right? I get an error because there is no there is no directory there. This is called relative path to a directory. Now, if I go CD Etsy, I say, go ahead and start at the very top and then move down to Etsy. That is going to be the absolute path, and that takes me there. So the concept is you can write the absolute path starting with the very top of the file system and then going through each directory structure. Absolute path. Relative path says start from where I am right now and then look for a subdirectory that, ha that has this name. So oftentimes when people start, this is they get this kind of error message right here. No file, such file or directory because they're not fully comprehending the, the concept between absolute path and relative path, right? So those are two important concepts. And it's probably something that I, I don't think I fully developed in Linux Basics for Hackers. So it's a good question. And I, I used to get a lot of questions like that. Also, when we're, we're talking about doing an ls command, and I told you using ls-l, this is what I use. And it gives me a lot more information than simply the ls command. An ls command just shows me the files and directories. It doesn't give me all the information about you know who owns it and who what permissions there are on it. But there's another variation on ls that's important, and that's ls-la. Now the difference here is that the a will give me the hidden directories and files. Oftentimes you'll see files that are hidden. And they won't show up with an ls, but they will show up with the ls-a. I'm going to clear my screen again. Clear, so I can get the, get the big picture here. Now, let's talk about ways that I can get help in Linux. You know, as you're starting off in Linux, you're not going to know everything about everything. None of, none of us do. You can be using Linux from day one, 30 years ago, and that's how old Linux is. It's now 30 years old. And you're not going to know everything. And there's always new tools that are coming up and you're not going to know how to use it. And so one of the best ways of, of finding information about whatever tool you're trying to use is to simply use the help. One of the best tools for hacking, probably the original tool and best tools for hacking Wi-Fi is Aircrack. Aircrack is the, the granddaddy of hacking tools. Okay, of Wi-Fi hacking tools. And there you can see aircrack.ng. The NG stands for new generation. That means that distinguishes it from the old generation aircrack. And, and we just do help. And notice that I get a, a very helpful screen. That gives me all of the key information that I need about this particular tool. Now, one of the things that I want to point out is that, first of all, like any other command line interface, you can just up arrow. If I push the up arrow, look what happens. I go, gets me the last command. Sometimes you want to, you know, you don't want to go ahead and retype the same command over and over again. Just go up arrow and it'll go ahead and pull up. So I can go through it and see all my old commands. That's kind of an important thing. Also, Let's go back and do up arrow. Okay, and let's go to our, well, let's go to our uh, air crack. And once again, this is our air crack is the granddaddy. Got to spell it right. And I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to use my tab key. 
<laughs> you can use the tab key to auto-complete, all right? So if you've put in enough characters to make it unique, you can just go ahead and tab and auto-complete, all right? Apparently, there's some people who watch these videos who <laughs> complain that I don't use the <laughs> auto-complete. I'm glad you did that because, yeah, that's quite, it's hilarious <laughs> when people say that. Yeah. So... Auto complete, you, use the, you can use the tab to auto complete. So here we go. Here's the air crack. Notice that I used a double dash. Okay, this is kind of, a, it's kind of an important concept. So that switches or options in Linux, there's usually two types, right? There are switches that have a options or switches is what they're called. Notice here that if they're a single letter, okay, there's one dash. If it's a word, it's double dash. Now, this is something that is kind of a convention in Linux, but and not everybody abides by it. But it's generally a rule that most people abide by. See here, all these are single options. So it's a single dash. Whenever we use a word as an option, we use double dashes. That's it's a general rule. It's adhered to by maybe 80% of applications, not by all of them. And you can see here that here's our help right here. Sometimes you can get to help by just using a dash H. In this case, it doesn't. It tells me that help is actually at dash dash help. Different applications will use different uh, options for getting help. Sometimes you can get help with not even putting in the help. You can just put in the command, right? And I'm going to go ahead and do an autocomplete with a tab key. <laughs> and then you can see that I just typed in air crack and I got the help screen. This is oftentimes with, with tools, you can just get the help screen by just simply entering the name of the, the tool, the binary, okay, the application, and it'll pull up you know, all of the help screen for you. Aircrack is an excellent tool. It's been around for a while. It's been around for a long time. Let's see. At the very top here, we can see it's been around since 2006. So Aircrack is one of those tools that you should be familiar with. And if you're not familiar with it, you know, you can learn more about it by simply going ahead and looking at the help screen. I'm going to go and do a, a clear to open up my screen, real estate. Um, another one of those tools that we uh, we probably should be familiar with as a hacker so when you're starting out is Nmap. So Nmap that uses a to get help, like I said, is that in Aircrack, we can get help by simply going ahead and entering the command and and then dash dash help. A dash H doesn't work. With an Nmap, H does work for help. And so we get the whole Nmap. Nmap is a port scanner. It allows us to scan a target system to see what ports are open, what services are running on it. This is a way to get a picture of what the target looks like. One of the things that I emphasize to all of my students is that you can't possibly be successful in hacking a system if you don't know what the system is. You have to do proper reconnaissance on your target to be able to be successful. You will not be successful if you don't do proper reconnaissance. One of the first steps of doing proper reconnaissance is knowing 
what ports are open, what operating systems are running, what services are running on that system. If you don't have the information, you're not going to be successful. Nmap's one of those tools, and maybe we can do something in the future, or you've got other videos on Nmap. But what I wanted to simply show here is that, one, there's different ways of getting the help screen. In some cases, it's going to be dash dash help. In some cases, it's going to be just H. And then there's something called the man pages that, that's short for manual that has nothing to do with any gender, right? It has to do with manual. And you can go man and then do, say, nmap. And it'll come up with a screen that's going to give you a help screen. It's going to give you a lot more information than the help. It's going to give you a lot of, you can just simply hit the enter and go through this long description. Of, this is nmap. And so if you've never used Nmap and you want to learn about it, here's a, a way to do it, right? And it's going to tell you all about how Nmap works. And this is going to apply to most tools, okay, most of your binaries. So we can, and then notice it says at the bottom here, press H for help or Q to quit. So let's hit Q to quit. It's going to say that it'd be great if you can do Nmap as well. It's always nice to get your perspective. So, you know, we can do it. As, I see it's in your book, right? So we can always add it as, an, as part of the series. Yeah, we can do Nmap. Nmap is a is a great tool. And Nmap has gotten a lot more powerful in recent years. This has added more scripts that you can use. So it's actually become, it started off as a simple tool that basically found open ports. And now it's become and it's it's kind of a hacking framework now. I mean, it's probably overstating it, but it's become much more powerful than it used to be. Then let's clear my screen. All right. So anything I'm trying to find information on, I can just use the man command to get to a manual. Sometimes when there's new scripts that come out, most of the tools that come out are are scripts. They are written as oftentimes a Python script. And generally the developers will create a man page, a manual page, but not always, but generally they will. One of the next skills that we want to, to talk about is how do I find stuff? There's so much stuff inside of my Linux. How do I go ahead and find things? And there's, there's a number of tools that I can use to be able to find stuff. The first place to start, I think, is using the keyword locate. Okay, so locate. Locate will basically go through the entire file system and look for this keyword that's going to, I'm going to enter next. So if I go air crack like that, it's going to find every reference. And there's a lot. So it's going to find every place where air crack is at. Now, this is a lot of information, and it might be useful, right? especially if there's only one or two references. But if there's a lot of them, it can be more information than you want. And so oftentimes what we're looking for is a binary, binary being the application, right? And so this is these are a lot of files in here that really I don't really care about. <laughs> and so what, what I really want is where's that command at that I want to run? Right, and I can just do where is right? that those two should be pretty easy to remember. Locate where is, and then I go air, and then I hit the tab <laughs> and I auto complete, and, and then it tells me where air crack is the, the binaries. And this is the first one, okay? User bin, okay? So that's the users binary air crack. 
Okay. User include aircraft and user share. And this is the man page. You can see that we just looked at that. This is the man page for aircraft. And so that's really useful in being able to find where the binary is. Now, there's one other way that uh, a couple more ways I want to show. And that is that sometimes there's a thing in, in there's a thing, there's a, there's a feature in, in Linux. There's a feature in Linux that also applies to, to the Windows machines and the Mac machines, and it's called the path, okay? And, and most people in using Windows system or Mac system don't ever pay attention to the path, but we often have to pay attention to the path in Linux because it determines where the system is going to look for your command, okay? Where is it going to look for your command. And that's determined by the path variable. So if I go echo, okay, and echo is another one of those, those commands that basically says, go ahead and show me, display for me the contents of a variable that's in my system. We'll talk about environmental variables in a later class. This is the this is the path is an environmental variable that stores where the system is going to look for my commands automatically. It's not going to look in every directory because that wouldn't be that wouldn't be efficient. What's going to look for? It's going to look for say the command aircrack in one of those directories that has binaries. Why would it look in the Etsy directory or the dev directory? Because there's no binaries there, right? So this is where the system determines where it's going to look for those. And this is our path. So the path variable says, okay, when I type something like aircrack, right, just type it as a, a command, it's going to look in user local bin, user local, in this case, sbin, user local bin, user local sbin, user local bin. These are all the places it's going to look. And if it doesn't find it there, it's going to come back with a message that says there's no such file or directory. That doesn't mean that it's not there. It simply means that it's not in one of these places. And this comes, this can be really confusing for a beginner. Okay, so I, I, I install a new tool, right? And I try to use it. I just type the command. But that tool's binary is not in one of these directories. So if I'm looking for, for instance, where the binary is in a path directory, I know this gets a little confusing. I can use the which command, and I'm going to, and I'm going to do a tab and autocomplete. And so what I did is I used the command which. Now this is different than where is. Where is tells me where aircrack's binary is located. Okay, and it shows me all the places. Which shows me where aircrack's binary is located among the directories in the path variable. Slightly different, slightly different. Either one of these are, can be really useful in being able to find a binary. If I've installed a new tool, the binary may not be in the path. So this is where I would look. I'd use where is. If it's in the path and you've used it in the past, it's going to show you here where it is. Well, I'm just going to use an example here. I installed a tool on this system yesterday, and it's called Kite, Kite Runner. 
And so I'm going to go, it's called locate. I'm going to use it for, and I'm going to go KR is the, the name of the file and comes back with lots of examples, some of them which have nothing to do with Kite Runner. That's too much information. doesn't really help me anything. I can go where is, and where is will show me where Kite Runner is, where the binary is at. And there it is. It's under user local bin. And then if I go which KR, it comes back with nothing. Why? Because this is not in my path directory. So I got different results for each one of those commands. So the one that's probably the most useful for me, okay, is this command right here. Where is? It shows me where the binary resides. So to run this command, I need to be in this directory right here. It will not work. So if I just do command not found, right? That's something that beginners often run up against, right? Command, I just installed that. I just installed, I know it's there. Why does it, why does it come back with command not found, right? Why does it come, I, I know I have it there. It's there, right? Yeah, and yes, it is there, but it's not going to find it because when you type it like this, it's looking in the directories that are in the path command. But this particular directory is not in the path variable. I said path command, I meant path variable. And I showed you that path variable just a moment ago. So let's go back and let's just. Let's Oscar, by the way, the one I always get asked right? about, and uh, you, you might get asked as well, is people want to know where the passwords are stored in Kali because they've heard about Rock U or they want to do like a brute force attack against, sorry, a, a dictionary attack against a Wi Fi password or some, uh, something. Um, and they want to know where the passwords are stored. Okay. Well, one of the things that you can do in Kali to find all of the word lists is go locate word lists. Right, and most of the word lists, the password lists, are under their labeled word lists, and you can see well, there's actually Rocky right there, and there's going to be hundreds of word lists in Cali. So one of the you know there's there's an art and there's a science to password cracking. the The science is the scripts and the tools that we use. The art is going to be selecting or creating the proper password list to use to try to crack a password. And that's something that comes with some experience and not necessarily, it's not something that, you know, that you can just throw a password cracking tool at a particular password or a hash of a password and be successful. Selecting the proper password list is part of the art of doing it properly. RockU is, um, you know, it's an old list that's been around for a while. What I prefer, other than RockU, is I've got uh, a couple of lists on Hackers Arise. One of them is the top 10,000 most common passwords and the top 1 million most common passwords. I prefer to use those first. They're more successful. The top 10,000 passwords will cover about 10% of all the possibilities. In other words, what we've done is we've collected those passwords that most commonly appear in the data dumps on the dark web. And there's about 10,000 passwords that get used over and over and over again. And you can imagine what those are, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, I, lo I love you. 
um, you know, and some some vulgar ones as well, right? And so these passwords, people think, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter what password I use as long as it's a number of characters, what have you. But people, you know, human beings are similar and they think similarly and they use similar passwords. And so you can go into the dark web, and we've already done this for you, and we've collected those passwords that are most common. So you can simply use our 10,000 password list, and that's going to get you about 10, 10% of all of the passwords used by people around the world. We also have another list of the top 1 million, and that's going to get you about 30 percent of all the passwords. Now, of course, 30 percent is not 100 percent, but I always recommend when you're doing password cracking that you start with the simple, okay, start small, okay, start simple, and this probably applies to life in general. Yes. <laughs> start simple and then work from simple to more complex. You don't want to be running rock you password list when the password is one, two, three, four, five, six. Right? <laughs> you know, start with a simple, small password list. See if it's there. If it's not, keep on getting into larger and more complex passwords. And one of the things that I always run up against is that people will use Rock U and some of these other password lists and they'll say, I couldn't find that. I, I ran it for hours, days, what have you, and I couldn't find the password. And I said, well, what country are you in? <laughs> oh, I am. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in France, right? Well, you're running an English password list in France, right? The, 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 the password's probably not going to be in English. It might be, but it's probably not. So what you need is a French password list. And so, and you can do some searches, do some Google searches and find some French, Spanish, Arabic, whatever language password lists that are out there on the web and use those because these lists, you know, these are made by English speakers and they're probably not going to apply in all countries, especially if nobody speaks English in your country, right? <laughs> now, one of the things interesting we found in, in, in our attacks against Russia is that Russia, we found a lot of systems that had English passwords on them That's because the, it is interesting because we didn't expect that. Not at all. And what we presume is that because a lot of the software is coming from English-speaking countries, okay, that there's the default passwords are in English. And then for whatever reason, the administrators changed them and used English passwords. It was a surprise for us. So, and yeah, we found lots of systems with English passwords for whatever reason. Not entirely sure why, but we presume it's because almost every case, the software that was being used was produced in the U.S. or the U.K. And, you know, it, it had everything's in English, right? The whole, all the software is in English. So the administrators put in English passwords in Russia. Let's talk a little bit about another more powerful tool for finding what you're looking for in Linux. And that's the find command. So let's, uh, there's find, and then we can use the dash H and let's take a, it says unknown predicate H. So the H doesn't work for find. Let's try just using, and there, when there's a, and find command, if we do it, it actually does, it actually does its work, which means find everything. And then we can, let's try using dash, dash, help, and there we get their help screen. So it took three times through, but it only took us a moment. This is a, a really powerful tool for finding information in your system. So find is 
is going to find, you know, previously we were looking for binary, but sometimes we're looking for other things, you know, like a configuration file, what have you. And find has a really powerful uh, capabilities of finding files that by size, by name, by when it was created, all of these things Find can do for us. But in this very, let me clear my screen, we'll use it for a pretty simple task here. Let's say we want to find, and the next thing that we put in in terms of find is where do we want find to look? Find is going to look through the entire file system if we don't tell it. But we can say start at the top of the file system, right? And then we can say what type of file, okay, what do we want, either a directory or do we want a file? We can say type and say file. And then we can say, how do we want to search for it? And we say we want to search by, and let's say we want to go find Apache 2. Apache 2 is the most widely used web server in the world. And let's see if we have any of those on this system. And look at what it does. It comes back and says, permission denied. Once again, this is something that you'll often find using a lot of tools, a lot of tools in Kali. Is you'll come back and permission denied. When you see that, you right away know that you need to be root to be able to do what you want to do. So if you get this message, right, permission denied, what you do is you just simply use the sudo command. Let's go up arrow, okay? That's up arrow. And then use sudo before it, and then it asks me for my password, all right, to prove that I'm actually who I am. And now it goes ahead and finds Apache 2, every place that Apache 2 is on the system. Now, it's still going to come back and tell me that some of them are permission denied. We can get pretty sophisticated with what we can do with the find command, but I recommend that you get familiar with it. You can do the man and then find, and it'll show you them. And there's a lot that we can use in the find to be very specific about what you're looking for. And here's a very long man page on find. But what I want to show is another really important concept, okay, in getting started in Linux. And that's called filtering with grep. So let's talk about that. Let's go um, PS, okay, PS is the processes. So PSAUX will show me all of the processes on the system. And so there's a lot there. These are all of the processes. But generally, when I use the PSAUX, I'm not necessarily looking for all of these processes. I'm looking for one in particular. So I can filter out all of this and just look for one particular file, right? One particular process that's running on this system. And so I can go PSAUX and let's say, then I'll go grep and it says, so this right here is the pipe. And what the pipe does is it says, take this command right here and take all of its output and then send its output to another command in this case, the grep command, and the grep filters for me and only will show me what I'm looking for. So maybe let's say, let's look for, say, the burp suite. Okay, I look for the keyword burp, and it's got, it. it's done some filtering, but <laughs> there's still a lot there. You can see it's a burp, burp browser here in the burp suite. 
I was using the burp suite yesterday, obviously. And so there's still a lot there. Um, maybe a better example, and this is, I'm going to go ahead, let's uh, back up a little bit, I'll clear my screen. One of the things that, that I'll show you in a later class is that there are, you can start and stop processes within Kali or any Linux by what's now known as the system control command. So I'm going to go sudo system control. Now, it used to be that we used to use the service command. It's now, service still works, but system control is kind of the more modern command. And I can go start and then go Apache, say, let's go Apache 2. This will start the Apache 2 web server. It did it. Okay, it started my Apache 2. So now, if I want to see if it's actually running, I can go PSAUX and then grep Apache 2. And now this will tell me, it'll show me whether that process, so this is will show me all of the processes, and this filters for just this keyword, Apache 2. And there we are. We've got, instead of all of that stuff that fills up my screen, I filtered out for just the keyword, Apache 2. And I see there's multiple processes that are comprising the Apache 2 um, service. And so this would be... So I was just going to say, sorry, just for people who might be confused, what you did there is you made your terminal window wider. Do you want to make it like much wider and then run the command again just so that people see it's okay. all on one line perhaps? There we go. That's much better. Yeah. So I've gone ahead and, uh, and asked the system to show me all of the processes and then filter for just the keyword Apache 2. And these are all processes that are linked to the Apache 2 service, the web server. And uh, you can, it'll show me who the user is. In this case, is the root user. And then these are www-data are the standard user on the Apache server. And then this last line here is basically the command looking for. Notice it says grep. So you're gonna when you do this, you're gonna get the the search itself is a process. And so here it is. The Kali user, me right now, is looking for Apache 2. So that's the final line here is that command looking for Apache. These are all part of the service that has been started. So this is a really useful when you're trying to filter out a lot of information. And so the grep is one of those key terms. That you know, we're working from a command line and we've gotten too much information. We want something very specific. We can pipe the output. Okay. That's what this is here. Pipe the output to a filter command. Grep is a filter command. And then this is the keyword that we're looking for. And you see, I've gone from this, a PSAUX, so much information, too much information, right? To also notice that the last. The last process is the search. And then I can go, and then I go from that to grep and then Apache 2. Ah, that's what I want. I didn't want all that other information. I've got exactly what I want on the screen right now. And that's uh, that's the key. Just for people who missed it, if you just scroll up, it show, the, the, people might be confused and not realize there's a lot of processes, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, just like crazy amounts. When, yeah. 
Right. There's crazy. These are all the processes that are running on your system. And many of them are simply started by default when you start your system. They're not ones that I necessarily started. But as you're running your system, the longer you run it. Here we were, yesterday we were doing API hacking. And this is, uh, this is the crappy is a, uh, is a simulation of an API tool that we can use for attacking the uh, APIs. So you got lots of things running on here, but I only wanted to see this. That's all I wanted to see. I want to see the services for Apache. I, even though there's a little bit more in this chapter, I think we've done a lot, and I don't want the, the video to get too long. You know, we've, we've covered a lot of material. Occupy the Web, I really want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and, you know, creating the sort of video companion guide to your book. Really appreciate you, you know, taking all your experience. And I've said this many times, but like bringing it down to like mere mortals level or beginners level. level. So I really appreciate you doing that. And I really look forward to the to the next video. It's just for everyone who's watching, Occupy the Web and I are going to hopefully continue with the series going through his book. Put your comments below. Let us know what you want us to cover. We've got a whole bunch of ideas. Uh, time is the biggest issue, but hopefully we'll be able to cover a lot of the the Linux uh, videos on my channel. Occupy the web. Any last words? Uh, no, no last words other than I love doing these with you, David, and hopefully we can keep this going. Anybody who you know wants to learn more about Linux, take a look at my Linux Basics for Hackers. You know, it's intended to get you started on the path to becoming a master hacker. But the first thing you got to do is you got to learn Linux. So we'll continue to do this and we'll go through the entire book over the next several months. Great. Thank you. Thanks, David.